Well, good morning. My name is Vern Collins, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here at Boone United Methodist Church. And typically, I am in our Crossroads worship gathering. But as we like to do from time to time, Ed and I uh, have switched places this morning. So he is uh, wearing loafers and blue jeans and a shirt that is untucked. And uh, I was ridiculed this morning because I came in with a shirt tucked in and shoes on and a coat. And if you don't mind, I would just like to, for this moment, relish in the fact that I am overdressed. Because it never happens. It never happens. Thank you. Don't get used to it. I would like to uh, submit for your consideration that while the game against Furman on October 12th, 2002, is considered Miracle on the Mountain, that we now have uh, a new contributor uh, for that title. Uh, yesterday's game was absolutely unbelievable. And I turned to my youngest daughter because she was the only one left in the house with me. So she rode the, ro- the emotional roller coaster with me. Uh, and I said to her, now that is the miracle on the mountain. And of course, she had no idea what I was talking uh, about. She didn't know what the first miracle on the mountain was. Uh, and then I later listened to the, the radio callback and realized that Adam Witten, uh, who calls the, the app games, now has, you know, he considers that this is now Miracle on the Mountain Part 2. Whatever, I will take credit for that, but he was the guy with the microphone, uh, so he's the, the people, the person that, uh, that, that people heard. Uh, this morning, we get to consider another uh, miracle on the mountain as we consider in our, uh, continue in our series uh, that Matthew records in his gospel that we know is the, the Great Commission, um, this, this charge that Jesus gave to his disciples to continue the work that he uh, began. And the miracle was not... Uh, that Jesus met on the mountain with his disciples. Jesus did that, uh, and, and his disciples met them there because that was what they were instructed to do. In my opinion, the miracle is that Jesus entrusted this great work to these men. We read in Matthew's gospel that it was the 11 uh, who were present there, and there may have been others present there, but Matthew says it was the 11 disciples who went to meet Jesus there, and the miracle is that he entrusted them with this great work. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that's incredible and, and what the hope is uh, for us in that. But if you would, um, if you are able uh, or, or in the posture of your heart, in the honor of God's word, would you please stand um, for the reading? Matthew 28, beginning with verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And I am surely, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If we pay attention to what Matthew has done up to this point in his gospel, and we know that all of the gospel writers have a different focus, have a different reason for recording the life of Jesus the way that they did. It was because of the audience to whom they were writing. You see, at the point that the gospels were being written, and the reason that the gospels were being written is because um, the, after the, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and the birth of the church and the expansion of the church as a result of the persecution that broke out 
disciples began to leave Jerusalem and that message of the goodness of life with Jesus, that message of the gospel, that message of hope for forgiveness and life abundant left with them. And it went out into the places where those who were leaving Jerusalem went. But like any good game of telephone, the further that you get away from the source, the more that the message can begin to be affected and impacted, sometimes negatively. And so the gospel writers, based on the audience, audiences to whom they were written, wrote this account of the life of Jesus, the things that he did, the things that he taught, the things that he accomplished, ultimately culminating with his death and, and praise God for us, his resurrection. This hope that death does not have the final say, that we can't in Christ be forgiven and be invited into this new life with him for eternity. Matthew's focus, in particular, is on Jesus as king and on this kingdom that he came to inaugurate. Matthew mentions this kingdom of God more than any of the other gospel writers. This understanding with with the arrival of Jesus and these words from Jesus and the words that John the Baptist spoke before Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is near. One thing has drawn alongside another. There's something happening now in a way that it has not happened before. So Matthew's focus has been this kingdom and this king in the person of Jesus. And I think it's important for us to see what Jesus does here in the life and, and in this interaction uh, with his disciples. Now, if you've been with us, you know that we are, we are taking these, these five, six verses and really slowing down and looking at each piece of this interaction and this great commission, taking our time, considering what does it mean to be disciples of Jesus? And as, as disciples, what does it mean for us to make disciples, to be disciple makers? And we considered a couple weeks ago the role of worship in living into the Great Commission. What is, what is the importance of worship in keeping our attention focused on Jesus and keeping our, 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 um, our affection stirred for him? How does worship play into that? What does a life of worship look like? And last week we considered doubt and what a gift for us that Matthew includes in his account that there were disciples there who doubted. These were men who walked with Jesus. These were men who who witnessed Jesus doing miraculous things. These were men who were now standing before the resurrected Christ, the one who was dead and is now alive. What a gift we have and that Matthew said that some doubted. Many of us, if we were trying to record this story in a way similar to Matthew, we would only tell the good parts. Yet Matthew includes here that there were doubting disciples. I think if it were up to me to write this, I would probably leave that part out. They saw him and they worshiped him. They saw him, they worshiped him, and some doubted. What a gift that worship and doubt can exist together in the same space. And what a gift that the thing that Jesus does in light of their doubt is not to try to convince them of something. Because I think so many of us feel like that is our responsibility, to convince doubters of the truth when all the while there might be doubts that we are wrestling with and carrying. But we don't want people to see that because we have, whether we've been told this or whether we've just come to believe it, that doubt is the enemy of faith. Oftentimes doubt can be a catalyst for faith. But the thing that Jesus does is not try to convince his disciples of something that is true. There's nothing more true than Jesus standing in front of them. 
Instead, Jesus offers them himself in the fullness of who he is. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. In face of their doubt, Jesus offers his disciples himself, proclaiming reality of who he is. Now, it is also important for us to see that Jesus, in telling them to go, is not telling them how to behave. Any good parent knows that when your child is leaving the house to go somewhere else, to go and have dinner with another family, to go and spend time with another family, to go to a place that you are not, the thing that we tell them is to be on their best what? Behavior. Because they are a reflection of you. And the last thing that you want is for your kid to be sitting at the table at a friend's house with their elbows on the table, wiping their mouth with their sleeve. And those parents are going to think, good gracious, this child was raised in a barn. Jesus doesn't tell his disciples how to behave. He tells them to go and do. He's telling them who to be, not how to behave. And and I think as we begin, that is the thing that we probably need to wrestle with. Because for so many in the church, particularly the church in the West, our understanding of what it means to be a Christian is that we are the morality police. Our job is to tell other people how to behave. And our job is to behave a certain way ourselves. Now, life with Christ absolutely should mean something about the way that we live, about the way that we treat others, about the way that we view this world and and walk in it. It should absolutely mean something about our lives. However, if all we understand being a Christian to be is merely modifying our behavior, then we have missed the fullness of what it means to know and follow Jesus. Jesus did not come and give his life merely to make you a better version of who you already are. It's not about behavior modification. Jesus came to give his life so that you might know new life. So that your old way of thinking, your old way of doing things, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That is what we carry with us as followers of Jesus. Are there times when we have to speak about the things that are being done to harm people in this world? Absolutely. But our job is not to police morality. None of us have been given the title of judge. Praise God, that title belongs to one and his name is Jesus. So Jesus isn't telling his disciples as they prepare to go, hey, now listen, boys, you gotta be on your best behavior. Because I don't want you going into a situation and flying off at the handle, Peter, like you're prone to do. Then it's going to reflect poorly on me, and then we're back to, you know, square one. And, and I don't wonder if, if sometimes part of what hurts our witness is rather than seeking to know people, seeking to meet them where they are, we just go in expecting that our job is to tell them that they need to change the way that they are behaving. When life with Christ is about so much more and how we behave. No, Jesus simply tells them to go and do. How can he do that? Because in the time that he has spent with them, if we consider the way that Matthew records this, and beginning in chapter five of his gospel, we see the Sermon on the Mount. 
Jesus has already taught them. He's already laid out for them. This is what it looks like to be a citizen in my kingdom. This is how you think. This is how you live. These are, this is the posture that you ought to have as one of my followers. They already know what it looks like to behave in a manner that is reflective of Jesus. And they will find that it is the Holy Spirit that will come at Pentecost that will empower and will enable them and encourage them and inspire them to do that. But right now, Jesus knows that he's already given them the tools that they need minus the Holy Spirit that will come. He's shown them, he's given them the the example of what it looks like to live a life that is a reflection of the Father and a reflection of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring to this earth. So it's not about how they behave. It's about what they are called to go and do. And, And that is the invitation and the challenge for all of us who consider ourselves followers of Christ. It's about going and inviting people into something more, something larger than themselves. Because if all we're asking people to do is change their behavior, we're just asking them to continue to be who they are, maybe just polish it up a little bit. I was signed up uh, for cotillion when I was in eighth grade. It was great. I'm, I'm thankful for the things that I learned, but there's no more awkward a situation to be put in as an eighth grader than to be, have to ask a girl to dance and then dance a dance that you're not comfortable you know, dancing because you have been goofing off and not really paying attention to the steps. But I can, I'm here to tell you that you can put a coat and a tie and pants and shoes and socks on a 13-year-old boy. He is still a 13-year-old boy. <laughs> you can polish him up all you want, but <laughs> deep down inside... He is still every bit a teenager, or a young teenager at that. Now Jesus tells his disciples, go, do. You already know who you are. Now go and carry that to the world around you. Jesus offers them this statement about himself before he tells them to go and do, in the face of their doubt, in the midst of their worship, Jesus comes to them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Up to this point in Matthew's gospel, and we see it reflected in in the other gospels as well, Jesus is often asked a question. What gives you the authority or by what authority do you do this? Jesus heals. By what authority do you, do you do this? Jesus heals on the Sabbath. What gives you the right? What gives you the authority to heal on the Sabbath? The way that Jesus teaches. We read that oftentimes the response of the conversation after Jesus' teaching is he taught as one who had authority. Now, make no mistake, the, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they were people who had authority to teach. But all they could do was merely point to the word of God. That was their authority. Their their authority was to point to the law, to point to the things that had been written, to point to the instruction that had been given to their forefathers. Jesus comes along and says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Now Jesus is taking these words that are written and not dismissing them but he's inviting us into them in a way that people have never known prior to Jesus. He teaches as one who has authority. He is the fulfillment and the example of God's law, of what it looks like to live in the fullness of who God calls his people to be. Many of us 
would look at this and say, right, Jesus is one who has authority. Any, anyone who can, Paul, who can call a dead person out of a tomb, that is a person with authority. Anyone who can walk on water, that is a person with authority, authority over the elements. Anyone who can heal, who can give sight to the blind, that is a person with authority. And, and yet I wonder, do we live our lives as if Jesus is the ultimate authority? Because it's not all of a sudden in this moment Jesus has been given authority. Jesus has authority up to this point, but this statement to his disciples, all authority, and, and oftentimes when, uh, when, when we are preparing to preach myself or Ed or any, any pastor who seeks to, um, to honor God and to do this well, we want to understand, let's dig into the original language and seek to understand what, is this, what does this mean? What, is, what did this mean in the original language? What does this mean, this word all? How do we pick that apart? It means all, that's it, everything. All authority in heaven and on earth. We, we can't nuance that in such a way that we are exempt from the reality of Jesus's authority. What does all mean? It means all, everything. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In the world that you see, in the world that you don't see, that is not readily apparent to you, it is all under the authority of the person of Jesus. Do our lives reflect that reality? Or are we like adolescents, like teenagers, when it comes to authority, the authority of Jesus? Let's, let's consider that for a moment. If someone <clears throat> told me I could go back and live any point of my life again, I can tell you which one I would not want to relive, and that is middle school. It was the hardest, the most challenging I mean, things were happening in the life of my family around me that made it hard, but I think adolescence, it doesn't matter what else you're going through. Being an adolescent, this word puberty, is probably the most difficult season that anyone can walk through. Consider this. All of a sudden, you wake up one morning and you realize that your parents don't know everything. Like, this is just a new revelation. You start your day one day and realize, hmm, my parents don't know everything. Almost at the same time, you somehow realize that you do know everything. <laughs> As if that is not bad enough, while this is happening, your body is rebelling against you in cruel ways. I, I have the privilege of uh, coaching the JV soccer team at the high school. To hear one of my players try to yell across the field to another player and hear that voice crack, I, I think it's hilarious. But it is, for him, the most painful thing that he has experienced that day. There's a man on. <laughs> Your parents don't know everything, you know everything, your body is rebelling against you, and to make it worse, it does get worse, the same thing is happening to all of your friends at the same time. And so collectively, when you have a bunch of adolescents together, you are needless risk takers. You give too easily into peer pressure. You are overly emotional and you lack concentration. And while all of this is happening, studies have shown that your mind is actually dumping information that it doesn't feel like is important. 
You wake up thinking your parents know nothing. You're the smartest person in the room. Your body's rebelling against you. All of this is happening to your friends and you are actually getting dumber all at the same time. And this results in the fact that as adolescents, we have a very difficult time with authority because we think we know what is best. And as a parent of an adolescent or someone who works with adolescents, you know how difficult that can be. And it's easy to say, it's easy to consider teenagers to consider adolescents and say, yeah, if only they knew that I am the one who has authority, that I am the one who knows best for them. And they're pushing back against that with every fiber of their being. And it's easy to place the blame there until we turn the mirror on ourselves and ask this question. Do we stand before Jesus, the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and submit to that authority? Or are we like a bunch of teenagers thinking that we know what is best and that we want to be the authorities of our own lives? And so we have to wrestle with that. Are you your own authority? Or are there people and things and ideologies in this world that we have lifted up to make our authority because our hope is that if we can support this thing, if we can support this person, if we can chase this dream, then it will help um, undergird and it will support this vision of our life that we feel like we should be able to have because the world has convinced us that if you want it, you gotta chase after it. And don't worry so much about what it's gonna cost. We make ourselves an authority in our lives and we uphold people and things and ideologies and places of authority hoping that they will help us achieve what we want. All the while, Jesus is lovingly standing there saying, all authority is mine. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. Why is this important? Because in his authority, Jesus walks alongside the broken, and the sinners. Jesus dines with prostitutes and tax collectors. I always, always love that tax collectors are given their own category there. Jesus dined with sinners and tax collectors. Table fellowship in that time was considered a holy thing. And so for Jesus to choose to, spend, to, choose, to, choose to break bread with such people, was to step outside of what God's people always believed was sacred. And yet Jesus, in his authority, is going to those who are lost and broken and hurting, who have been marginalized and pushed down by society, and saying, you have a seat at my table. All authority is mine, in heaven and on earth. And so for him, from a place of authority, to instruct his disciples, to instruct us, go, go and make disciples. Go and tell other people what you have experienced. What is it that these disciples experienced? I mean, just the things that they, they, they saw, the things that they, they witnessed, the things that they were a part of. But even before that, the fact that they were called to be disciples. You see, in that, in that time, and there, we, we could spend a lot of time on this, but I'm not. But just the, the short version of this is that in that time, part of the upbringing was religious study was study of God's law, was study of what we have as the first five books of the Bible, the law, their history, to know it inside and out. And as they progressed in their learning, the goal was to get to a place where, where someone in, in a position of authority looked at them and said, we believe that you have what it takes to be a disciple of a rabbi. 
The fact that these men that Jesus called were working the family trade means that somewhere along the way they had been told, you don't quite have what it takes to follow a rabbi, but we believe that the best way that you can honor God is to go and, and, and support the family business. That's how you can please God. Jesus, in his authority, called these men who had been told somewhere along the way, hey, you don't quite have what it takes, but here's something else you can do. In his authority, he called the unlikely and invited them to participate in what he was doing. In his authority, he said to them, and any who would follow, you find life by giving your life up not by creating this picture in your mind of what life should be and then chasing after it with all you have because when you do that, you're actually gonna lose your life. It's gonna, it's gonna suck the life right out of you. It's only a person in a place of authority who says that by dying to something, you can actually live. And that's exactly what Jesus offers. He offers a, li- a life not based on what we can achieve, not based on how much we make, not based on who we spend time with but based solely on what he accomplished, based solely on the cross, based solely on the resurrection, the authority to give life, the authority to offer forgiveness, to pick us up when we stumble and invite us to continue to walk, the authority to reorient us in our priorities, to say these things that I've been chasing. And sometimes God in his grace will allow us to chase those things. I remember the first time the, the reality and the hope of the gospel became real to me. It was, I was a sophomore in high school and I began on this journey of surrendering my life to Jesus. But there was always one thing that I felt like I should withhold and that was the pursuit of relationship. I was like, God, you're, you're busy being God. You, you can have all these other things, I got this. Sometimes God in his grace just looks at us and says, that's cute and allows us, allows us to walk that path, allows us to pursue and, and to chase that thing, because he knows ultimately we will come to a place where we realize, wait, that is empty. It's not fulfilling. It's not life-giving. It's only a person who exists in a place of authority, all authority, in heaven and on earth, who is willing to allow the ones that he loves more than anything to walk a path of their own choosing, because he knows that ultimately that path will prove to be a dead end. Perhaps the reason that we have such a difficult time allowing children to walk their own path is because we are worried about losing authority in their lives. And there are a hundred other reasons we are worried about letting kids walk their own path, but I don't wonder if some of it doesn't boil down to the fact that we're worried that our voice will no longer matter. Jesus, complete unto himself. God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, complete unto himself. In the fullness of his authority is willing to allow us to stumble, is willing to allow us to fall so that we might come to a place where we realize that it's not about chasing life, it's about receiving it. It's about saying yes to this life that is being offered through Christ. What happens when we do this? What happens when we submit our will to the authority of Jesus, when we submit our lives to the authority of Jesus, our priorities, the things that we thought were important, the things that we feel like this world should give us, when we submit all of that to the authority of Jesus, we become untouchable by this world. 
Now, it doesn't mean that we won't suffer. It doesn't mean that we won't experience difficulty. It doesn't mean that we won't experience heartache and pain. It doesn't mean that our journey will be easy. Jesus never promised a comfortable journey. He promised to comfort us in the midst of it. But he never promised that it would be comfortable. When I say that we become untouchable, we realize that even the things that might happen to us on this earth, even the phone call that we don't expect, even the fact that a relationship is not working out the way that we hoped it would, even the fact that a job is not working out the way that we hoped it would, we realize that there is one who is unfazed by that. There is one who is not worried about that. There is one who is in a place of authority over all of that, over all that we can see and all that we can't see. His name is Jesus. And when we begin to take on that posture of entrusting our lives to him as the only one who truly has authority, then we begin to understand something about Paul and the way that he operated. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live In the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul is saying, my life is no longer mine. It exists under the authority of Jesus. Okay, great. What does that mean for me? Look at the way that Paul lived his life. Consider what he says in uh, the beginning of uh, of his letter to the church in Philippi. People, you know, Paul was threatened with death all the time. Paul, if you don't stop preaching the gospel, we are going to have to put you to death. Great, to die is gain. Okay, well, that's not gonna work. So then, well, Paul, will let you live. Great, to live is Christ. Paul, you're gonna have to suffer. That's great. It's gonna be painful. It's gonna hurt. But I know that my present sufferings do not compare with the glory that one day I will get to experience. I mean, imagine what a thorn in the flesh of authorities Paul was. Nothing worked. Paul, we're gonna lock you up in prison. Fantastic. That means I'll have a captive audience. No pun intended. The Roman guards that you surround me with, guess what? I'm gonna hammer them with the gospel. And I'm gonna watch the Holy Spirit work in their lives. And then guess what they're gonna do? They're gonna go out and tell other people. The thing that I wish I could do, but I can't do because I'm in prison. That's all right, I'm gonna enlist other people in this work. Because I know that my the authority of my life, the one who is in authority over all things, who holds all things is Jesus, the one who conquered death. There's nothing that you can do to me that will change that reality. What if the church began to take up that mentality? Not that we bullied people with the gospel, but that we were so overcome by it and we were so sure of the authority of Jesus in this world and in our lives that we began to think less about what people think of us. We began to worry less about what might happen if I opened my mouth and shared Jesus with someone. And we began to be concerned with the hearts of people in the same way that Jesus is. Imagine what this church begins to look like. Imagine what our community begins to look like. And the thing that all of us are invited to wrestle with is what is keeping us from making Jesus the authority of our lives? Is it my own authority? Is it the people or things I've placed in authority in my life? In his grace, Jesus invites us to deal with those things and deals with those things in us. Who or what is your authority? And if it's not Jesus, then why not? 
And here's perhaps the most beautiful thing that we're given. I'll close with this. In John's gospel, John chapter 13, as Jesus is spending his last moments with his disciples, John records this. It was just before the Passover feast. This is John 13, 1. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In the evening meal, the evening meal was in progress and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist after he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet. Jesus knew in that moment that all power was his, all authority, if you will, was his, and he leveraged his authority on behalf of his disciples. The same men who would betray him, the same men who would deny him, the same men who would run and hide, he leveraged his authority on their behalf, setting the example for them of what life following him ought to look like. Because we know we don't have to be our own authorities, we are freed to approach every opportunity, every interaction that we have with people around us as if it is an opportunity to in some manner stoop and wash their feet, to show them worth, to show them value, to take a back seat to what we want because we want them to know that they are loved and that they have worth. And it's the thing that all of us crave. We all want to be known. Jesus, in telling his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, tells them, I know you. I know it all. And I want you to go. I want you to go and tell other people. But I want you to do it in a way that is inviting. I want you to live in a way that is compelling. I want you to do it in a way that is full of hope, that is light in dark places. It's not about bullying people into the faith. It's not about arguing people into the faith. It's not even about convincing people of all the things that they're doing wrong. They know those things. And the Holy Spirit does that work alongside us and in us, through us. It's about living in such a way that we say, you know what, I have an authority that's not this world. I have an authority that's not me. My authority is Jesus. And scripture tells me in Romans chapter eight, as Paul experienced, there is nothing that can place me outside of the reach of his grace. What a hopeful thing for their worship and doubt to be met with. The reminder of the fullness of who Jesus is. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we confess to you that there are any number of things in this world and in our lives that we allow to hold places of authority. We confess to you even that we seek to be our own authority. God, sometimes in your grace and your patience, you allow us to walk that out and realize that it is empty and futile. Confess to you that sometimes we are like teenagers in our rebellion, that we don't like to be held under the authority of certain things and people. But I pray by your Holy Spirit that you would soften our hearts, that you would allow us to see what those things are, those people are in our lives that we submit to, 
that are less than your best for us. God, I pray that you would move us to a place where we know that we are loved and that your grace abounds. Bring us to a place where we are willing to see Jesus as the one who has been given all authority and to live life in the freedom of that, knowing that it's not up to us to create some life for ourselves, but it's merely up to us to receive it and enjoy it and then share that goodness with those around us. It's in the name of Jesus that we ask all of these things alongside the empowering of your Holy Spirit. Amen.